It's really weird being uh, introduced. Sounds like a really weird because I can just introduce myself. But thank you, Tom, for that. So, but it's great to be up here with you this afternoon on what is a sunny day and probably our only sunny day left of West Point because it's going to rain all day tomorrow, isn't it? So, but please don't go. Please stay here. I have some good stuff, I promise. Um, so, this workshop is obviously on mental health and young people. I'm going to try and make it as practical as possible because that's important. I could just stand up here and give theory upon theory, but I suppose what's really important is that we know what to do and we know how to handle particular situations. And for me, the well-being of our nation's young people is under threat like never before, like never I've, I've seen it before. The systems that are set up to support our young people are at breaking point. And I would go as far to say there is they are wholly inadequate, in, inadequate to meet the need, to meet the demand of young people suffering with their mental health. Now that's not to say our CAM services and other mental health professionals do a bad job, but there's just not enough of them. The, the social services and other statutory services have seen cuts year after year after year yeah, but that's not stopped the ever-growing need getting higher, higher, and higher. And the ugly truth is that 10% of all young people in England suffer with a mental health condition. 10%. So in a youth group of 30, three young people will be suffering with a diagnosable mental health condition. 70% of those young people will not get the adequate support that they need, 70%. That's ridiculously high. And we know that 50% of all mental health illnesses are established in childhood, 50%. 13% of all young people in England suffer from some form of self-harm episode, and that's just the ones that are documented. Much self-harm is undocumented, is unreported. And worryingly, there's been a 70% increase in young people attending A&E with self-harm-related injuries. And then one in six, some people say one in four, people suffer with a prolonged form of anxiety. Some of the most common mental health conditions and difficulties our young people will face include depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, self-harm and general anxiety disorders. And this is why I wanted to do this today. I kind of went, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, oh no, I've got to talk in front of people. Awkward. I wanted to get the conversation started. So I don't stand up here as the professional that I know it all because I really don't. But I believe there's things that I can bring to you today that can be really beneficial. Um, there may be some questions that you have that I may not have the answer for. And if that's the case, I'm sorry but I want to be as helpful as possible. But a little bit about me. My name is Mark. I'm 32 years of age. I know I don't look it. Very young, thank you. Uh, I'm married um, to my darling wife, Emily. Um, we are pregnant during November, and I have a 10-year-old daughter called Lily. Um, I've had the privilege of working, I say privilege, it's been hard work, um, for working with young people for the past 10, 11 years. And that's been in a range of different environments and professions. My first being a therapeutic children's care home for young people that couldn't stay with their parents for a variety of different reasons to uh, working in probably my most difficult 
of environments was a secure mental health unit for teenagers. So some of the country's most ill teenagers were there. Um, they were populated with young people who had experienced rape and um, high levels of self-harm, heavy drug use, and, um, and it was really difficult, really hard to see that. But working there really gave me an insight into kind of young people and their mental health. But in every role that I have undertaken throughout my time with working with young people, I've seen them battle with such a range of mental health issues or witness them dealing with situations that could impact their well-being. Maybe family breakdown was a big one, cyberbullying, grooming, child sexual exploitation, rape, drug abuse, exam pressures, prolonged forms of anxiety, relationships breakdown, both parental and their own. Uh, parental mental ill health is a massive one that impacts young people and sexual abuse. And I'm sure that we all have young people in our youth groups or our church or our community that will suffer with their well-being. I can bet my life on it. But we also have young people that do, have a really good, do a really good job of covering up their well-being, covering up how they're really doing. And spotting, the, spotting it can be really difficult. Spotting the signs can be tough. And then... Knowing what to do when you've spotted it can be even harder, and it can be scary. And I will often battle, probably one of my biggest battles is the thoughts that go on my, through my head when I'm just like, oh, they're just looking for attention. Or they're just being a teenager. They're just being silly. It's just a phase. They'll, they'll get over this. But in fact, this is something that we need to take very, very seriously. I'm just going to have a sip of water. Another thing that we need to consider before we move on is the spiritual. Um, a few years ago when I was working in the secure wing of a mental health hospital um, for very unwell teenagers, um, whilst working here, the level of pain and suffering was incredible. It was, and it felt as if there was this darkness that just hung over the place. I know it sounds a bit weird to say but it's true, it just felt that there was just something more at work there. Young people writing all over their walls, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I hate myself, and other obscenities, and you just think, there's something more going on here, something much more. And then you begin to think, actually this is, this is where the devil wants these young people. He wants them broken, he wants them down and out for the count. And then you begin to think, well, Scripture such as 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to kill, steal, and all steal, kill, and destroy. And actually when I read them, and I think back there, actually they become more than just words from the Bible. Actually I'm witnessing these young people being almost destroyed, being kind of kicked about, gone through so much pain and suffering, and they've ended up there, and that's, that was hard to witness. But I think we can bring something more than just the practical to our young people. I think we can bring them Jesus, and that's something that no other statutory service, no other health service can bring. 
one of the biggest difficulties I had working for statutory services was that I couldn't tell them about Jesus. I couldn't pray for them. I couldn't invite them to church. And actually the best thing, one of the best things about my job now is that I can. And it's amazing and I love it. So with all this in mind, where do we start? And this was a difficult, difficult thing to decide. You'd be surprised to know. I sent an email out asking for kind of people's comments and questions. And what came about was just the scope of kind of what this could have become. So that was a big difficulty. But I settled on this. Um, and my first point is don't be the hero. Don't be the hero. You'd probably be surprised about that. But if you were to leave here with anything today, it would be don't be the superhero in a cloak, flying in, trying to fix all of their problems. Because we won't. And we never will be able to. We also won't have all the answers for their questions. We won't be able to meet them when they really want us to. We won't always know what we're doing. We won't understa understand how to respond to some of their actions and some of their behaviours, some of which can be really, really scary. And then we won't always make the right decisions. But we aren't superheroes. And we're not mental health professionals. Well, if you are, then obviously you are a mental health professional, but <laughs> you know what I mean. But we can play a role in the well-being of our young people, both in our churches and in our community. In fact, there's so much as youth workers and people working with young people and that has contact with young people, there's so much that we can do. We can spot the signs early and put measures in place to help. We can educate and equip our young people to better manage their well-being. We can educate parents on the signs that their child is under stress and how best to help and support them. And we can offer our time to local authorities and work in partnership with them. We can partner with other charities that do fantastic work in communities up and down the country. And we can encourage as church leaders and people within congregations to get other people involved from our congregation. And we can pray for our young people, pray for their families, pray for mental health professionals, pray for people in power to make the right decisions that best influence our young people. But probably one of the most things that I would say you can do, other than giving it to God, would be, would be to build healthy relationships with your young people. If there's one thing that I've learned throughout my time working with young people, <coughs> is that you have to earn the right to speak into their lives. And that comes about from putting time and effort into the relationship. One of the, my most time-heavy thing working for Hope Church Beaconsfield would be relationships with my young people. I put so much time into it because I know the value of having good relationships with young people as if that I want to earn the right to speak into their lives. Because who am I to tell them this and tell them that when they don't trust me? They don't know me really. But actually when they know you, when they know your heart, it can help. So I've got a really dry mouth. Sorry. Right. Is everyone okay? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, I understand that um, there are many things that we as youth leaders, you may not all be youth leaders in here, but I wrote this like I was going to talk to youth leaders, so there we go. Um, we're more than just youth leaders. You'll always be more than just a youth leader. You're a taxi driver. You're a counsellor. You're a nurse. 
you're a clown, you're a pastor, you're a worship leader, you're a security, comf- uh, a security contractor, keep them out of trouble, you're a bank manager, and sometimes you're a relationship guru. They're always going through relationships, trying to keep those boys and girls separate is a really, really time-consuming thing. But I get that we do a lot, and that's not to mention the other areas that you serve within the church or your full-time job, so I get that. But I really want to respectfully encourage you to spend time building those relationships. It's so important. It's so key. And if there's a way that you can do that whilst managing everything else, then go for it. So let's get on to some stuff. Before we go actually any further, I just want to mention safeguarding. So um, it may sound obvious, and it probably is to many of us in here, but um, and this can be a difficult thing to do, and we can often se- second-guess our judgment, like, oh, there's nothing there. Oh, who am, I to, who am I to get involved? But if at any point you or a member of your team suspect that something is going on, something not just a little bit, but something like a young person has put themselves in an immediate danger, whether that's they want to take their own life or they're standing on the, or they're saying they're going to do something, then you call 999. You call the police. Because who are you to judge? Who am I to judge how serious they are? I've had plenty of young people throughout my time threatening that, and I've never regretted once ringing the police and just saying, I'm worried about this young person. Because that's what's the worst that can happen if you call the young people, the, the police? Nothing happens, but if you don't call the police, what's the worst that could happen? That young person could kill themselves. So you're well within your rights, and I would 100% tell you to do that. But also, you, there's other agencies you can contact, so if you're not uh, hun- if you're not overly concerned immediately with their safety. Actually, there's agencies that you can contact, such as CAMS, or social care, or youth services, or even the police, and um, there are other areas, um, other services in your area that you can contact to use if you have a, a con- if you're concerned, but not immediately concerned about a young person's mental health. Um, so two more things which I added in not that long ago, but I thought it was really important Working with young people can be really difficult and you can take so much on, constantly taking so much on. And it's important that you have someone you can talk to, someone you can offload onto. Now working in the, the agencies that I've worked for, we call these supervisions, but they can be anything. They're just basically a one-to-one where you can talk to someone you trust in confidence about kind of the work that you're doing and they can support you with that. They can give you advice, they can give you wisdom but you take a lot on working with young people. There's a lot of transference that you take on and you can just keep taking it and taking it and taking it. And it can get to the point where actually you're no good to anyone and you just break down. The advice you give can be bad advice. How you react can be bad. So supervisions. If you work for the church, this should be 100% in your safeguarding policy, without a doubt. And the next thing I want to talk to you about is policy, the boring safeguarding policy. But... Having a safeguarding policy is so, so, so important. Not just one that we, we look at once a year when it's time to renew it, or one that just stays on the shelf and gathers dust, but actually one that we know. Because working with young people, we never know what's around the corner. In fact, working with adults, you never know what's around the corner, but young people just have this habit of getting themselves into trouble over and over again. So it's important that we know what to do. We know what our church says to do. We know who to contact. We know who to talk to. 
So it's, it's kind of like a working document. Every church should have a safeguarding policy. It should be up to date. You should know where it is. Your team should know where it is. So I'd encourage you to look at that, read it, understand it. And if it needs updating, then update it. Another policy, which we'll talk about later on in more depth, is a self-harm policy. Lots of places um, recently have started having their own separate policy on self-harm because it's a bit of more of a niche area, but still linked into your safeguarding policy, but a standalone self-harm policy. So what are some of the areas you, as youth leaders or people that work with young people, struggle with when it comes to mental health? Put your hands up if you have any. Go for it. Addiction. Let's write this down. Anything else? Gender issues. Oh, gender issues. Well, yeah. But it's still important that we talk about it. Peer pressure. a big one. That's something we'll cover quite a lot today, self-harm. Yeah, <laughs> like like it's a TV, yeah. That impacts young people's mental health yeah, massively. Massively. Yeah. massively. Yes at the back? Appropriate relationships. Broken relationships, yeah. Anything else? Big one. Neglect and attachment. Anything else? Brilliant. Okay. So that's more for my personal thing, but if we have time, we'll cover some of this. We will cover some of this within my talk. But I think what the, what really came about when I was writing this was just the scope of what needs to be talked about. But in like an hour, you can't really give this justice. So I kind of just had to pick a couple of areas and just go for it. But if we have time for questions, well, we all should have time for questions at the end. Hopefully some of this can come out. And like I said, I don't stand up here as the professional. So if someone thinks I can answer that really well, just shove your hand up and then answer it. Is that okay? Awesome. So, okay, let's crack on. So I wanted to start today with probably one of the biggest, one of the biggest things at the moment, especially that I'm facing with my young people is self-harm and supporting young people with self-harm. I think over the years it's become more and more prevalent amongst our young people. And sadly I'd be amazed 
if there's people in here that didn't know someone that self-harms or know of someone that self-harms or knew someone that knew someone that self-harms. Like I said earlier, there's been a 70% increase in admissions to A&E. But one of the things we need to understand and remember is that much of self-harm that goes on is actually behind closed doors and doesn't get reported. So we can automatically assume that the 13% is probably a lot higher, but we'll go with 13%. But people self-harm for many different reasons, but to put it simply, it's a coping strategy, albeit a very unhealthy one. It's a way of coping with either a difficult situation or a way of managing their emotions. But either way, it's important to understand that just because someone is self-harming, it doesn't mean they're crazy. It doesn't mean they have a mental illness, and it doesn't mean that they want to end their life. I think sometimes what we can think is if someone's self-harming that they must want to kill themselves, but that's not always the case. Yes, they're more likely to, but it doesn't mean that they will do. It's just a coping strategy. So what do we think are some of the self-harm, some of the types of self-harm that we'd see? Shout them out. Let's get you involved. Cutting. Scratching. Overdose. Hitting. Pulling her. Yeah, I put eating disorder. That's a good one. Substance misuse is a is a big one. Burning. Anything more for any more? Okay, I'll read you my list. But so punching walls, cutting anywhere on the body, burning, biting, scratching, substance abuse. Uh, not eating, uh, making yourself sick, uh, pulling your hair, pulling eyelashes, uh, binge eating, uh, not allowing wounds to heal, so a constant scratching over old wounds. You can hit yourself um, or hit other things. Uh, self-poisoning and also self-trolling. Um, if you're unsure what self-trolling is, it's basically um, commenting on your, own on your own post and being quite abusive towards yourself. Um, maybe under a fake account and you're abusing yourself via that. But there are many different ways in which young people can self-harm and some are more obvious than others. Um, but the signs someone are self-harming, it can be quite difficult to spot if a young person is self-harming, someone that's part of your youth group. And, and it's important that we understand the signs and what to look for. So some of the signs which... I've put down is uh, they could begin to talk about it, just talking about it. Uh, they could begin to skip certain activities such as swimming or PE. Um, clothing, clothing's a big one. Um, people that I'm aware of that I work with during the hot spell we've just had would be wearing hoodies and that's normally a big sign that there's something they don't want people to see. Uh, Risk-taking behavior, uh, changes in their eating and sleeping habits. Now, that may be something that we don't see, but as part of the bigger picture, that may come up. Substance misuse, 
Um, they could become isolated and irritable. But I'm sure there's other signs which you may be aware of. Um, but what do we do when we suspect a young person is self-harming? Knowing the signs is a good place to start, obviously. But what do we do when we see that? Um, I've got four points that I think that we should do. So we should build up the wider picture. So if you have a team around you as a, as a youth leader, then you should f talk to them. Have, what have they spotted? Is there anything that's going on? Have they seen other signs that you've not seen? Just one of those signs that someone is self-harming may not be enough in itself. But if, you, if a young person starts talking about it and has begun to skip certain activities and their risk-taking behavior increases, then you can begin to start to build a bigger picture up that something more is going on here. Consider doing a piece of work on self-harm within your group. Now, this is a big one. This is something that we do at Hope Church, and we begin, we've begun to do. Um, within our youth, we've given it time for an upfront talk. So we've spoken about self-harm. Uh, in our small group sessions, we've spoken about our well-being, and we begin to give them strategies on coping with it. So doing a piece of work, but not just one piece of work and then that's it, that's done for the year, we'll do that next year. Actually revisit it and continue to revisit it. Um, it may take time for a young person to disclose um, or to come to you or for, the, or for your, your understanding of the signs that you've seen. So building up the picture may take longer than a week, two weeks, three weeks. So it's important that you revisit it over and over again. And if your team still feel concerned or you still feel concerned after this, after the front front talk, you're still concerned, there's more there, then have a chat with the young person, a one-to-one -one chat. Make it open. Opening statements are brilliant. Closed statements are awful because it will just go nowhere. Um, statements such as, I've been concerned for you, or how are you doing? How did you find the well-being session? But be gentle, be transparent, and make sure the environment is right. So maybe not in McDonald's is the best place to have this conversation. Maybe at the church, maybe somewhere a little bit more settled for them. And what do you do when someone has told you they're self-harming? I think that the first thing, if the person's in immediate risk or at immediate risk, um, then you call 999, without a doubt. Um, but if someone has disclosed to you that they've um, taken an overdose, no matter how long ago it was, if they've not sought medical attention, then you need to take them to A&E straight away. There's no, there's no time limit of that. If someone says to you that they've taken an overdose, then they need to go to A&E. Someone's told you that they're self-harming. What are they feeling now? Are they okay? What kind of state are they in? That will determine a lot of how you respond to it. Um, what support do they need moving forwards? Do they need you to do some one-to-one -one sessions with them? Do they need a referral to uh, another service? Do you need to sit down and talk to their parents? That's a tricky one. So that will all, a lot of that will come under your policy and what your policy says of when you disclose to parents and if you need consent and 
also age and and depending on the young person's circumstance are they living at home are they living in foster care are they elsewhere obviously if they're under the care of the local authority then you'd have to disclose straight away but if they're not then it all depends on what your self-harm policy says and i've got uh, some examples of our self-harm policy so you can have a look and take that away with you i think going over the incident if you're confident enough and helping them to understand why it happened is really important it doesn't change or undo what's happened but it may help them manage better next time did they have an argument with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and did they then self-harm as a, as a result of that how are they going through a stressful situation do they have an exam that's coming up so helping them see that actually can you put some strategies in place to help them manage it better next time maybe there's someone they can call maybe it's having something as simple as making yourself a cup of tea i worked with a mother once who used to self-harm and just by putting having a cup of tea in there actually prolonged actually before she self-harmed next time because it just took her mind off something gave her something to do for that period of time so you're boiling the kettle you're waiting around you're pouring the tea into something that prolongs it consider who else needs to be informed do you need to inform their parents do you need to inform your elder a youth leader or another agency again this will all to be determined on your self-harm policy or your safeguarding policy i won't stand up here and say you need to tell the parents straight away actually that's for your policy to determine what happens but i think what i would say is if it's an immediate risk then you just you call 999 that's what i would say there and this may be quite obvious but sometimes i think even before the conversation starts we never promise confidentiality we're up front straight away with our young people um, we should always be open and honest with them about it and it is a vital step in safeguarding them and you it's important that you safeguard yourself uh, and let them know who you may need to contact and why you may need to contact them um, many years i was many years ago i was working at a young people's home i was quite new to the role and i heard a smash upstairs i went running up i was about a week two weeks into my um employment there i'd never worked with young people like that before i walked in and there was glass everywhere and there's a young person sitting in the corner cutting herself my reaction was anything less than comforting <laughs> anything less i was shocked i didn't know what to do and actually her seeing that probably probably heightened her anxieties because she saw the shock on my face and i had no idea what i was doing so I think it's really important that our, if a young person tells us that they're self-harming, our response is not one of disgust or shock or disgust. How we respond can determine how they f and if this young person will share with you in the future. And it's really important that actually there's people that they can share with that they trust. So if we are shocked at what they've done, if we are disgusted or we show this, then they're probably not going to come and speak to you about it again so helping someone who self-harms i'm just going to have a drink is everyone okay brilliant i hope this is helpful oh i hope it will be helpful okay so how can you help someone that self-harms uh, the type of support 
will de be determined on the young person and it will depend on a variety of other factors, their age, your time availability, their time availability, your position, the level of risk that the self-harm poses. Actually, if this is quite serious form of self-harm, actually, there may be, um, you'll maybe more take a backseat role to support and actually allow other services to do their job. Uh, you may not be able to support them, and if you don't think you have the time to support them, then you need to let them know that, and you need to discuss other options of other people that may be able to support them. Don't put yourself in a position where you, you say that you're going to help them and literally you just can't do it because you've overcommitted yourself because that's not going to benefit them and it's not going to benefit you. I think listening is one of the most valuable things you can do. Just sitting there and listening to them. You may not have a clue what to say, but just listening is such an important thing you can do. It helps them to feel empowered and it helps them to feel valued. I think being honest and consistent like I said, it's okay not to understand. There's many times I've sat there and I was just like blown away. I have no idea where I, I need to take this. But just listening and actually telling them that, just being honest, say, wow, thank you for telling me. I don't really know what to say. Not, oh, let's, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do this because that's not what they want to hear. I think identifying and exploring coping methods is a really big thing to do. Can, can they pinpoint what's driving this behavior? And can they explore other options? Can you help them explore other options, give them other strategies of how to manage their feelings? I think encouraging them to explore the underlying issues is a big thing as well. Is it exams? Is it family life? What are the triggers behind their self-harming behavior? One way of doing this is logs, Mood logs is a really good thing to do. Um, you can build up a pattern. So just helping them do that and supporting them doing that is a really easy thing of to help them do. Even if you don't have much self-harm knowledge or, or knowledge in this subject, actually just sitting down with them and helping them write this log and help them understand kind of the situation that just happened can be a really big thing. Uh, never avoid the subject of self-harm with a young person. If they want to talk to you and you're too busy, let them know that you're too busy to talk at that moment in time and say, hey, let's, let's do it tomorrow. Let's do it the next day. But give them a date, give them a time. And if you're not the right person, then help arrange for them to speak to someone who is. Don't just be like, actually, I don't want to talk about this because I find it too uncomfortable. Or maybe there you have a safeguarding lead at your church. Um, and get them involved and get them to talk to that young person. I think one of the biggest things, which may sound a bit weird, but it's the truth, and I promise you this, is you never ask them to stop self-harming. Never ask someone who self-harms to stop self-harming. That may sound a bit weird. Of course we want them to stop, but it needs to come from them. Telling someone to stop to stop means that you cross the line from being able to support them professionally to being emotionally involved with their situation. Your name could get added to the list of people they feel they are letting down each time they self-harm. You can cause them to stop telling people. It can cause them to stop telling you when they've self-harmed. And it can drive it to become a secret again. And it can escalate their self-harming behavior. So never ask them to stop self-harming. 
of course we want them to stop like I just said but your language and how you go about doing this is key and again your self-harm policy I'm talking about policy a lot today aren't I you may get the hint why uh, will have form of how you do this so a young person has come to you with a self-harm injury what do you do I think um, you treat it as a first aid incident and you'd follow the normal procedures as you would if someone had fallen over and cut their knee um, and during that time it may be a helpful opportunity to have a chat with them about how this come about something that does it's not so face-to-face -face. you're focusing on doing something and then be available to listen to them as they talk and understand how this happened and why this has happened and then offer if appropriate an alternative time to talk once you have helped them clean themselves up um, you then to need to think who you need to contact what does your safeguarding policy say what does your self-harm policy say do you need to talk to your safeguarding lead do you need to talk to an elder who do you need to talk to do you need to take this further do you need to call someone so I understand that we are not mental health professionals so who else can help there are many services out there that can help that are there to help these young people and maybe a doctor a school nurse parent or family member uh, a mentor youth services there's uh, there's a service called cams has anyone heard has anyone heard of cams cams is basically the child and adolescent mental health um service and um, a referral to them is always a good place to start or just giving them a call and just talking through some of your concerns I've noticed this this is happening it can be in complete confidence complete it can be completely confidential and actually they are some experts in this field and they can really advise you on what you need to do and how you need to do it okay so just to quickly summarize on self-harm if in doubt always refer always refer if in doubt if you if something's happening or you're really unsure just pick up the phone either cams or you or the social services if in doubt refer never promise confidentiality never promise to keep what's happened a secret remember that you're not a hero you're not a superhero never tell them to stop self-harming and always follow what your safeguarding policy says. There it is again. So does anyone have any questions on self-harm? No? Yes. That's a very, very good question. I think being, I've always found being open and honest with my young people straight from the start and the reasons why I can't the reasons why I would need if I felt to move this on if I felt they were at risk is massive and actually where that's where your relationship with your young people comes into play because they know your heart they know why you'll need to do this and actually you know them so you know if you need to take this further sometimes as well because you you know how they may respond but it's a really tricky thing. It's such a fine line of maintaining this confidentiality. A young person has trusted you with something. But on the other hand, you're like, actually, this is really quite bad. I need to take this forward. But I would 
I would say never be afraid of moving it forward because in the long term, you need to safeguard them. That's the priority there. Maybe not the relationship, but their, their safety is paramount. Um, and if in doubt, ring someone up, CAMS, social services. The numbers that you can find are always on the internet, on your local safeguard and website board. So there's numbers available. It's really easy to find them. And they're always available, always available to talk. And again, adding with a safeguarding policy or self-harm policy should touch on that when, when to refer. But it's a very, very good question and probably a rubbish answer, but that's what I would say. Any other questions on self-harm? Yes. I think so, but it would have to be done under, um, it would have to be written into your safeguarding self-harm policy, and it would have to be done under the supervision of a medical professional, and probably with the agreement of parents, um, but that, I think safe self-harm is better than dangerous, using dirty blades and things like that, so yeah, I think, I think it's an important thing. We need to recognise that it happens and actually t sometimes take the stigma away from it and just support that young person and help them through that and give them other strategies to cope. But yeah, I think that could be a, a way down for a church to do that. I don't see why not. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so, um, sorry, what's your name? Lydia is a support worker and they offer uh, safe self-harm and um, do you help clean up as well? Yeah. So it's offering uh, a safe way of self-harming that doesn't put the young person at more risk. Um, so that was the question. Is that okay? Sorry, that's that's. I should repeat the question. Any other questions to do with self-harm? Okay, it's quite a scary thing. Yes. I would say no, but that's me personally. I'd take the same approach with a Christian as I do a non-Christian. I think as a Christian youth worker, I'm able to do that. I'm able to say, let me pray for you. Let's talk about this. Um, but if you're in another position, it may be a, you're a support worker or you're a mental health professional, that may be something you can't do. But as a Christian youth worker, I'd just follow the same, the same thing. I'd, I want to pray for my young people. I want to support them. Um, so I'd just approach it the same way. Did everyone hear the question? Sorry. <laughs> a bit too late now. You've heard the answer. <laughs> but self-harm is really scary. Like I said, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, oh my gosh. What do I do? Working in uh, a secure unit, you, the level of self-harm you see in those places, I never thought existed. Ne just never thought existed. And it can be really, really scary. But actually being scared is okay. It's okay. Cool. Okay. Moving on. Another big thing that I found um, working with young people is uh, anxiety. Um, supporting young people with their anxiety. I... Yesterday, I had the pleasure of talking to our youth here at Commission uh, about managing their anxiety and 
as a youth worker working with young people, it's amazing to see just how much this impacts young people from them not taking their GCSEs, to not going to school, to not going out with their friends, to how they dress. It is insane. But it's thought that over 300,000 young people in Britain suffer with a diagnosable anxiety-related disorder. That's an awful lot of young people, an awful lot. And it's also thought that anxiety is the single most common reason for a young person's referral to CAMS, which is our Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. But I just want to briefly touch on what is anxiety. Is that okay? And then we'll look at some of the signs and go into that. Um, now, let's just define it quick. You may already know this, but for those that don't, anxiety is the thought of a threat or the thought that something may go wrong both now or in the future. It's also a word that describes uncomfortable feelings of worry, nervousness, and tension. Now, the example I gave to our lovely young people of anxiety is, is that I'm scared of lifts. Anyone else scared of lifts in here? Is it just, oh, just me and Tom? Great, cheers, mate. It's not that I'm scared of them, I just get a bit anxious when it's time to go in them. Like, my heart will beat a little faster. All these uncontrollable thoughts will quickly ridge around my head, like I'm going to get stuck in there, or I'm going to fall 10,000 floors to my death. And then it quickly subsides, but that's how I get anxious. Anyway, so what are some of the physical and emotional signs of anxiety? Just shout them out. So we'll start with the physical. What are some of the physical signs of anxiety? Yes. Yeah, sweating. Oh, yeah. I was sweating loads before I got up here. Biting nails. Anything else? Sorry. Twitches. Yep. Nausea. Yeah. Not eating. Definitely. Heart rate goes up. Funny tummy. I get a funny tummy like it's like butterflies. I need a wee sometimes. Yeah. Definitely going to the toilet. Dry mouth. It's just all the things that me here really, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, pacing. <laughs> you can feel really alert, like you're just on it, like you're just, nothing else matters and that's all you can focus on. Uh, really alert. Um, your breathing can become quicker. Um, you may need to go for a wee. That's basically a physical response. Your body is getting ready to run, so it needs to empty itself. Sounds weird, but it's true. Um, so what are the, what about the emotional side of things? Start shouting it out. Go for it. Emotional signs of anxiety. I'll start you off. You can become tearful. Pardon, he said that? Withdrawn, yeah. Yeah, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Your mind races. Yeah. Panic. Definitely. Hypersensitive, yeah. Uh, concentration levels can drop. Uh, you can become self-critical. Uh, you can be develop a low self-esteem. Uh, you can become fearful of fearing the fear, which is a big one. So I could fear fearing the fear of lifts, and it could just go over and over again in my head. 
you become forgetful and tiredness is a big one. <coughs> but like I, sa I said to the young people this yesterday morning, that anxiety is such a normal thing for us to feel. In fact, it keeps us safe. We have this, has anyone seen Inside Out, the movie, Pixar, the Inside Out? We basically have a little guy called Anxiety, or girl, called Anxiety in our head. And when it sees something that may cause us harm, it hits this big red button and sends out all these signals to our, to our brain and to our body to get ready to react. So it's a very, very normal thing to feel. But anxiety can and does go bad, and I think we all know that it does go bad. And many of the young people I see, work with, have as part of, and have as part of my youth group, um, have it, uh, either some point suffered with anxiety or currently struggling with anxiety. Well, uh, this is huge, this is such a big thing amongst young people nowadays. And it can impact so much of their lives. I'm aware I'm working with a young person at the moment who didn't sit their GCSEs because of anxiety, just because of how bad it got. So it's massive, absolutely massive. So what do we do as youth leaders or people that work with young people when we believe someone is struggling with their anxiety? I said this with the self-harm. I think we should give mental health so much more priority within our youth groups, within our churches, and we should talk about it a lot more. So my first suggestion would be to talk about it either as an upfront in your youth nights, a one-to-one -one session or small groups. We've done this a couple of times at Hope Church with our young people and then offered them strategies to manage it better. And it's really helpful. It's really helpful for them to know that actually this is something we want to talk about, we're happy to talk about. And it kind of gives them the opportunity to disclose, to tell us and talk about it. Um, you don't always need a disclosure to offer help. I think that would go with self-harm and anything that you work with, just by equipping them and giving them strate strategies to help, actually is a really easy thing to do. So you don't even need to wait for the disclosure. You could just go, we're going to talk about this today because I know that anxiety impacts many young people without them having to go, yeah, that's me. You could give them the strategies to help. <coughs> um, given time to the subject, I mean, you may not feel confident or they may not feel confident in telling you first time round, so revisit it. Um, the same with self-harm, like I said earlier, revisit it. Um, and they, if, they, if you give it enough, if you give it enough, what's the word I'm looking for? Visibility, is that it? We'll go with visibility, I don't know. If you give it enough attention, then eventually they will feel confident enough to talk about it. Uh, always be open and honest and gentle in your approaches with anxiety um, and allow space and time. Um, the first time you meet may not be that fruitful when someone is suffering with anxiety. It may take a while for it to really come out, but just keep pressing on, keep meeting with them, be faithful with that. Um, supporting your young people with anxiety. So. If they're really, if their anxiety is quite bad and a, and a referral has not been made, then you need to consider making one to CAMS. Um, this is something that you could talk to their parents about, that you would talk to them about. Uh, maybe a youth service or early in intervention team you could speak with just for advice. Um, I'm quite, I work quite closely with our local secondary school, so we're always going back and forth with the young people that we're working with or that I'm working with in there. 
and just bouncing ideas off each other. Does a referral need to be made? Actually, no, it doesn't. We can do this. What about this? What about that? So working closely with other people. I think giving them your time is a big thing. Just be available. Take them out. Hang out with them. Uh, but don't overcommit yourself. And if you can't commit to them, then don't offer that. Don't be like, yeah, yeah, I'll meet with you and then keep letting them down or it be once and then not meet with them for another six months. Praying for them is a massive thing and it's such a great thing that we can do that. It was such a big frustration of mine working with young people and not being able to pray for them. And like I said earlier, it's the thing I love. I love that I can pray for my young people. I love that I can bring Christi um, non-Christians here to this week that suffer with mental health. That I, that's how I've come to know them and I can invite them to a Christian camp. It's brilliant, absolutely amazing. I'd love to have done that with so many young people that I've had the privilege working for, and I wasn't able to, and it was frustrating. We can equip them with great coping strategies. Stress balls are a, a nice, easy one for low-level anxiety. Diary writing, mood apps on their phone. There's so many different mood apps out there. Like. I thought this was a bit silly when I first, but actually it's a really good thing to do and it really helps them calm down. It really helps them regulate their breathing. Um, another way is helping them breathing exercises. So there's a, there's a breathing exercise which is just basically a square. I'll show you it now. It'll be a bit weird, but it does help. So you know. <laughs> so you breathe in, breathe out. And you just get them to do that. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And it just helps them regulate their breathing, maybe in the form of a panic attack, maybe when they're feeling quite, <gasps> it just helps them. And it helps them concentrate on something. And it can sometimes take their concentration off what they're getting anxious about. Um, there's great websites out there, really, really good websites out there, um, full of advice on coping with anxiety. Uh, Young Minds is a great website. They're a great organization. And Youthscape are another great organization who I would encourage you to look at and go on their websites and see what they offer. Um, building resilience in your young people. I think you're giving them the coping strategy gives them resilience to, to tackle anxiety themselves. Um, and self-harm themselves um, rather than having to always come to you or come to someone else actually they can cope themselves so it's really important that we invest our time in equipping them and educating them I think also you could educate yourself actually by being here today you are educating yourself but there's self-reading you can do there's training courses you can go on that can go further than I'm able to today and in more depth than I'm able to today I've booked myself on loads of training courses. I'm always going to my elders going, can I go on this, please? It's only a lot of money, but hey. But, and they're great, and they just, because they understand, my elders understand the need for this and the need to be equipped to manage this properly. Um, so educate yourself. Fantastic training opportunities out there. Great websites, Youthscape, Young Mind, Anxiety UK, and MindEd, all one word, are good websites to check out. Um, also, in supporting young people with their anxiety, um, if safe and in line with your policies, involve the parents. Really important. They are, the, in most cases, the primary caregivers. 
And if you're able to involve them, if you're able to equip and educate them, then actually they can support their young person at home and the reliance on you eases a bit. And we want our young, we want our young people to go to their parents. We want our parents to support their young people. Um, and finally, if appropriate, a referral to a more specialised agency. I'm looking online at your local safeguarding website board will be hugely beneficial for you when you get back either to your tent or when you get back to your home church. Just check it out. There's lots of information on there. But I understand that we are Christian youth workers. Most of well, who can I just get a show of hands? Who actually directly works with young people? Cool. And who those that don't do you have lots of do you have young people in your church that come along that's caused you to come here or were you just curious? Young people in your church? Just put your hands. Great. Awesome. Um, so we have something that we can offer our young people that statutory services can't. Something far more and like I said earlier, one of the biggest frustrations I had was I couldn't pray for our young people. I couldn't tell them about Jesus. I couldn't invite them to church. So one of the big things the and the best things you can do is pray for your young people, invite them to church, equ equip them with scriptures to battle what they're going through. One of the one of the big things that anxiety is is that it's holding false beliefs about yourself, the world, or other people around you. So actually, equipping our young people with the truth about what the Bible says, actually, then they can battle these thoughts and these feelings. That makes them nervous. That makes them worry. So I would encourage you to do that. So we're nearly there. I hope you're finding some of this helpful. Um, it was really difficult to try to land on something because there was just so much I could, like you said, like we did at the start, there was just so much I could talk about. But actually, if I couldn't give it the appropriate time, I didn't want to go into it. So I hope you understand why I've decided just to focus on a particular topic. So we've looked at self-harm and we've looked at anxiety. I chose those two because they're the two, um, they're some of the biggest things that I encounter, self-harm and anxiety. Self-harms are really scary things to deal with. So I wanted to give it um, <coughs> priority and anxiety. I just think it's really important that we are talking to our young people about this. So just some of the factors that impact our youth groups well-being um, and I think we can all come up with list upon list upon list of things that impact our young people um, but I just wanted to pick two out um, one of the biggest things which I'm sure we all see is and feel is social media it's massive 91% of young people between age of 16 and 25 have a Facebook account or a Snapchat account or an Instagram account, or some other latest fad that's come out since I wrote this. Um, social media has a huge influence, not only on our young people, but our society in general. Uh, take, for instance, mobile phones. Who's got a mobile phone in this room? Pretty much every one of us. So we can see how massive um, social media and technology is. Um, one of the things that I do in the mornings is that I will look at my Facebook account, just scroll through it, or my Instagram account. I'm sure it's unhealthy, but I'm sure many of us do that. And young people are not the same. In fact, 
I think uh, one of the biggest troubles that I've had this week is keeping my young people off their phones. Just enjoy the weather, enjoy yourself here. But they're just like that on Instagram, Snapchat, all these kind of things. Um, so some of the things that impact our young people, cyberbullying, gone are the days of playground bullying. Actually, it's 24 hours, seven days a week. And you can be bullied from someone across the other side of the world. Never met them before. And that person probably isn't who you think they are. It's probably someone else under a false name. Online, game ad gaming addiction. Fortnite's a big thing at the moment. Lots of my young people play Fortnite. In fact, there's two young people that used to come to club that since it come out, I haven't seen them because they're literally just always playing Fortnite. Uh, pornography, there's that word. So that's a big thing for our young people. Uh, they believe that young people as young as 10 or younger are watching pornography now because of how easy, how easily it is available. They reckon two or three clicks from a YouTube account and you're watching porn. And I know that my young, my young daughter loves going on YouTube. And I think young people just always on YouTube watching things. In fact, there's this new thing where young people will watch YouTube of other young people playing. I just don't get that. Why don't they just play? It's weird. Um, so cyberbullying, a massive issue, impacts so many of our young people. Um, and obviously that will impact our young people's mental health and their well-being. Um, like I said, gone are the days that this just took place in the playground. So cyberbullying, I think we need to educate ourselves on this, on the types, the signs, what this looks like. And this is really easy to do. Just click on websites and just educate yourselves. I had this whole thing that I wanted to go through everything, but I thought this would be like a four-part series across six weeks. So I just had to encourage you to look at it yourselves. Um, online grooming is a big thing. Working for local authorities, working for social care, this um, this come up quite a lot of young people being groomed online. Um, we only need to look in the newspapers and on the news, not in the two distant parts of the cases in Rotherham and Oxford, which would have started online. And we as youth workers so need to be aware of this and informed of the signs and how this can impact our young people. Uh, we need to understand the signs and what to do when we see it. I think with the short time I have, I'd encourage you to um, either contact social services or CEOP, which are the um, CEOP, which is the online protection for uh, young people being exploited. Um, uh, gaming and YouTube, like I said, that's massive. And pornography, all areas which impact our young people. And it's topics that we shouldn't be afraid to touch on in our youth groups, in uh, small group sessions, even upfront talks, give it time, educate, equip our young people. Um, and family life is the next thing I want to touch on quickly. Probably that's a massive thing for our young people. Um, I spent about two and a half years working for an early intervention service, and I would spend most of my time uh, working with families that were in crisis for a whole range of different reasons. Uh, many were entrenched throughout years and years of family dysfunction, and some were hit by unexpected events that caused the need for additional support. But what I learned there was that the power the family situation can have on young people, 
um, their well-being, their ability to function well. It's incredible. I'm aware that many young people within my youth group and within the groups I run um, have been negatively influenced by their home lives, which has had significant impact on their well-being. Um, young families who maybe the mother has a mental uh, illness of her own and actually the impact that can have on her children and you, you see the patterns that these young people pick up. So being aware of the family situation, being aware of what's going on is really important to be able to support our young people. Um, but it's quite difficult to support those situations. But what I would, would say is the best thing that I learned from my time working with young people through the church is just being there, just being available. And again, placing a relationship building high on the list. Say so that I'm gonna I'm gonna meet with that young person once a week and I'm gonna commit to them and then I'm gonna support them in any which way I can. Not just think, do you know what, when there's an issue, I'll just swoop in with my cape and fix everything and sweep back out again. Because it doesn't work like that, sadly. Um but we've covered a lot this afternoon. My mouth is incredibly dry. And I'm sorry if it was different to what you're expecting, but I had to do something and I had to start somewhere and I had to finish somewhere, so that's what I landed on. But I'm hopeful of running more youth training stuff throughout the year. That actually, this doesn't just have to be a one-off. There's other people who I've been speaking to that are keen to do this as well because it's such an issue amongst our churches, such an issue amongst the young people that attend our youth groups, but also an issue amongst the young people we want to reach. And being equipped and knowledgeable in this area will better equip us to manage and support these young people. I mentioned about a self-harm policy. We've recently just had this done. Um, and um, you can come and take one of these. Uh, I've only got 15 copies, so if you don't really need it, don't take it. But I would encourage you to take one. If they all go and you still want one, I can email them to you. So just leave me your email address. But I would encourage you to have a look at this. It goes into more detail about self-harm. Um, but any questions anyone has it can be anything or anything I've spoken about and I'll see what I can do yes cheers yep yep yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he let me do this yep yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, equipping. Um, I think what may be best to do is if if you want more information, if you leave your email address, then I can I can I've got lots of different things and resources that I use and that I'm aware of, and that I can send across, um, either from kids work working with teenagers, working for the local authority and still having friends there. They give me a lot of their stuff, which is great. Um, training courses, I get everything, which is really helpful. So if you just come to the front afterwards and just give me your email address and anyone else that wants more information, I can definitely sort that out for you. Cool. Any other questions?
yeah. So engaging with people really with a short period of time. Um, that's a good question. I've always found throughout my whole time working with young people especially is that doing something is the best way to talk to someone rather than face to face. We call it the washing up shoulder. Some of the best conversations I've had with a young person is either driving with them or just standing next to them like this because it's so weird just how you doing all right? It's really weird because we just don't do that and young people don't do that. Um, but too busy on their phones, yeah. But that's that's an interesting one in terms of... Um, but I think we're trying not to get the whole conversation out in one go, so do it little bits at a time and just kind of having a plan of how you're going to approach that, I would say, um, and kind of targets that you want to reach with that. But um, that's quite a difficult one when they do have such a short attention span, they want to get up and go out for a fag. Would you go with them and sit with them as they have their cigarette? Ah, good old policies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the young, the young people that used to smoke in my group, if they were going to smoke, I couldn't stop them smoking. And their parents knew they were smoking. I would just sit with them when they were smoking. I used to smoke when I was younger, and my youth leaders would sit with me and get so much out of me because they knew I wasn't going anywhere. So they could get me. So, I mean, if your policy says you can, then that's a great way. Just follow them around like a bad smell. That's what I do with my young people. They're not getting away with from me that easily. Cool. Anything else? Yes. Yep. Okay. So the question... Okay, um, so it's about policies. Do I write, do we as a church write our own policies and um, how do we balance the ensuring that they're legal? So take the self-harm policy, for example. Um, I, so Youthscape do a thing called Self-Harm UK and they're fantastic. They're very knowledgeable in that area. If you want to learn more about self-harm and working with young people in self-harm, Self-Harm UK are brilliant. Um, they do training courses, they do lots of material online, lots of information online for your young people as well. It's a great site to, to um, tell your young people about. But um, So we brought, uh, we brought their um, policy guide and a lot of everything that's in there is, is legal and it's in line with current policies. And But if you're struggling, if you're thinking, where do I get it from? In every single area across the country, there's something called local safeguarding boards. And you can just go onto their website and it has all about policies on there, about writing your own policy, policy example or examples of policies that you could just take. You're allowed to take them because they're for public use. And then you can just, as long as you keep the, the headings the same, the titles the same, how you approach that as a church, you'd still be legal. Um, so I would encourage you to just check out your local safeguarding board websites and also for the self-harm, 100% check out Self-Harm UK. So, yeah, 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 there is, 
Yeah, and that's a real danger. So um, working with people on the ground, understanding the safeguarding policy and things like that. It was basically, um, and that's why I mentioned it a lot within my talk about policy. It's so important that we know what our policy is, know what to do in the event that something goes wrong. Because sometimes you can go, oh, I'm just going to do this, and it can be completely against what your policy says. And if anything goes wrong, you got you've not got a leg to stand on because you've gone against your policy. If your policy says tell the parent, and you've told the parent, and it goes wrong, you can go, I followed our safeguarding policy, or you told. In fact, to be fair, if calling the police or telling social services about something, you'd never get in trouble for that because that should be in your policy anyway. Um, and another thing which I probably didn't say, which I should have said was that if you feel there's something not quite right and you feel that you, a referral needs to be made and maybe someone within the church says don't make it, you make the referral because this is that's your opinion and if anything was to go wrong and you took advice not to make the referral and actually, and you thought, oh, I should have made the referral, then actually you're in the wrong there you should always make a referral as professionals if we see something going wrong we have a professional obligation to make a referral and to leave our name so if i was to make a referral to social services about concern that i have i'd have to leave my name because i'm in a position of trust um and so again that should be in your safeguarding policy our safeguarding policy like that it's great but we have but what we have done so we have the boring safeguarding policy but then we've picked out a lot of key information for our workers and for people and that work with our young people and that work with our youth and put it in an easy read booklet form and just give it to them all the key information key numbers what to do in the event of a disclosure who they need to talk to numbers they need to call um so yeah i don't think i've done a good job of answering that question but <laughs> cool anything else from anyone Okay, so um, how does it work taking a young person um, to the side for a one-to-one? -one? Again, that would depend completely on the situation and the type of young person. And if it's male to female or female to female, I will always encourage um, my female youth leader to have those conversations with females. I'll never do that on my own. And if I do, I'll have a young person with me or I'll do it in a, in a public setting or with the door open. But again, a lot of this feeds into your safeguarding policy and what that says you should do. Um, but I would never uh, encourage you to put yourself in, un if, you're in un if you're uncomfortable doing something, then don't do it. And speak to your safeguarding lead, speak to someone of trust and say, look, I'm feeling like this is, but I'm not comfortable enough doing this. Can you sit in on us talking about this or something? But also your relationship with that young person um, will dictate how you do that. So there's young people that I know that I could sit down with and have those conversations that someone else couldn't because they'd just kick off. But because I have that relationship with them, I'm confident enough in doing that. Cool. Okay, thank you so very much. I hope that was helpful. Um, enjoy the rest of your West Point.